0: We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. We thank you that you have preserved your word down through the centuries and that you have given oversight and protection to its preservation and that we can have confidence that what we have preserved in the original languages reflects accurately your original revelation and the inerrancy of the original autographs. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, who teaches us, guides, and directs us. We pray that under his teaching ministry this evening we'll be able to uh, comprehend the things that we study and we'll be encouraged and strengthened in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I guess one announcement's in order for those of you who have to uh, struggle with that traffic up on 610 headed south. There is a fairly convenient alternate route and that is that when you head out of here and go down Mangum and you just go under under the two ninety and keep going straight, it dead ends at the old Hempstead Highway and you can do one of two things at that point. You can make a left and and then make the first right which is South Post Oak and that takes you over and it merges about Woodway or Memorial and 610, you can get on 610 there, or you can turn right on Hempstead and go to uh, Long Point and then head up Long Point and head over on uh, Silver or Antoine or Word or one of those to get over to I 10. So that gives you a way to get around that uh, nasty traffic jam that's been developing uh, going over I 10. But I don't know, after the opening the other night, anybody been over it at night since Tuesday? What's it like? It's still bad? Okay. Uh, so there, there you go. Now you have uh, empirical data. And the issue is whether or not you believe it. On a, On a motorcycle, it's bad. So that means in a four-wheel vehicle, it's even worse. All right. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we continue our study. And we're in Hebrews 1, 3 still running through these tremendous clauses that the writer of Hebrews packs up, one on top of the other, to talk about the unique person of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.1, After God spoke in a variety of fragments, in a variety of forms in time past, to the fathers by means of the prophets, He has in these last days... Spoken to us by means of his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, right after he says his son, we've noted that there is a shift to that point, and actually the whole of the four verses is one sentence in the Greek and has one subject, which is God spoke to us by means of his son. But what happens after his son is the subject of the last two and a half verses, from 2b through 4. Shifts into this series of relative clauses, the subject of which is His Son. And this is one of the most significant passages on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture, along with Colossians 1 and John 1. See, that's real easy to remember. I remember a few years ago at an ordination council, they were asked to name three passages that relate to Christology. And it's sort of simple first year seminary type stuff. It's John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. you just remember 1, you've got it. This is one of the most significant passages describing who Jesus is as God, fully God and fully man. As His Son whom He has appointed, and His Son here represents to us His Son in hypostatic union. That's the thrust. He's not looking at Jesus here as just the Son of God, but He is looking at Him as the Son in hypostatic union because it was the Son in hypostatic union after the Incarnation who as part of His objective during the first advent was to reveal God the Father to man. That is always the mission of the second person of the Trinity. John 1.14 says that no man has seen the Father at any time. That includes all of those Old Testament appearances. Those were the pre-incarnate Son of God. No one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed Him. And so this is the Son's role. But at the incarnation, we got the final word. The greatest possible Revelation of God the Father and His character to man. So He spoke to us in these last days, that's the church age, by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. He goes to the end and then back to the beginning. The focus here is on where we are headed in terms of our destiny. And our destiny in the church age is inseparably linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one reason we study prophecy. There's a legitimate reason to study prophecy, and that is because, well, there's several reasons. The first reason you study prophecy is because it's part of the Word of God. 28% of the Scripture was prophetic when it was revealed. 28%, that's more than one out of every four verses, was prophecy when it was revealed. At this stage, 18%... Of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. The reason I bring that up is I was in a discussion with a pastor a couple of days ago, and he said that uh, he had been involved in a uh, table, lunch, lunch table discussion with some folks, and somebody said, who'd been a believer for a long time, said, Why do we need to study prophecy? You know, all people just want to study prophecy because it titillates their imagination, they want to speculate about how close they are to the rapture. And I was real pleased that this pastor said he said I'm probably too hard on him. I just lowered the boom. Uh, He said prophecies, 18% of the New Test—I mean, 18% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. That's almost one out of every five verses. So if you don't think that prophecy is important, you're basically saying we're going to ignore 20% of the Scripture. But if one out of every five verses is prophetic, says something about the future, that tells you that in those five verses, having a right and proper understanding of God's plan for the future and dispensations is crucial to the interpretation of that passage. And if you don't have a correct view of eschatology, you're not going to properly interpret passages that relate to our spiritual life. So the first reason we study prophecy and we look to the future is because it's, it's part of the Word of God. The second reason we study it is because it gives us an understanding of the faithfulness of God in the midst of a changeable world. It gives us an understanding of the faithfulness of God in the midst of a changeable world. Stop a minute and think about prophecy in the Bible. Who are the great prophets that we think about? What are the great prophetic books that come to mind? You have the, the big ones in the Old Testament the, that we call the major prophets, not because they were more significant than the others, but because they're larger books. And they, in the Old Testament times, they took up more scroll space. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you have other prophetic books that are smaller, but nevertheless significant, such as Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, the, the twelve minor, so-called minor prophets that have tremendous prophetic data in there. Now, if you understand the Bible, see, this is what happens. Most Christians don't really understand the Bible. If you understand the, the Bible and how the Bible was revealed, then what you realize is that when those books were given, when Isaiah had his ministry, what was going on? You have the invasion of the Assyrian. What's going on when Jeremiah is prophesying? Well, now you have the southern kingdom being assaulted by Nebuchadnezzar, and God is about to take them out under the fifth cycle of discipline. What's happening in Ezekiel? Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah and Daniel. The same situation. Nebuchadnezzar is on the horizon, a major... Uh, conquest is about to take place. The people in the land, the Jews, God's chosen people, are about to be taken into captivity. In other words, in the midst of incredible adversity, where their whole world is going to be wiped out and destroyed, and they're going to lose everything near and dear to them, God is telling them about the future. Why? Because God is saying, I have it under control. In the midst of an unstable world that that completely shatters around you, you need to understand that I'm still in control, I'm still going to bring about my plans and purposes for Israel and for my chosen people, and there is a future destiny for you. And so when we study prophecy, it gives us tremendous comfort that when things aren't going well in our own day-to-day life, we know how things are going to end. We know that God is still in control and that His plan is working out, and prophecy gives us that understanding. The third reason we study prophecy is it helps us to understand what our eternal destiny is, that we are all heirs of God, but there is a special incentive to believers in the church age that if we grow and advance in our spiritual life, in spiritual maturity, then we will reach that category of being an overcomer, as we see in Revelation 2 and 3, or as uh, the writer of Hebrews refers to the same classification of people, a partaker, or metakoi, or partner with the Lord Jesus Christ, or... um, as we sometimes refer to them, successful believers, those who are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. That feeds your understanding of your personal sense of your eternal destiny. So the more you understand what's happening prophetically in Scripture, the more it should motivate you in terms of your spiritual life today. So it has nothing to do with some sort of uh, titillation of, of uh, speculation, people's desire to find out what's going on. Are we, are we, uh, where are we on the, on the, on the uh, prophecy map? Are we three years from the rapture, two years from the rapture? Unfortunately, a lot of people teach it that way. And you get, watch people on television and you see that, uh, that stimulation excite people through newspaper exegesis. But that's not correct. But just because some people, incorrectly handle prophecy doesn't mean that prophecy shouldn't be taught so we understand that and and the lord through the holy spirit here inspiring the writer of hebrews says the son was appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the ages and the idea there is that he made the dispensations it's the lord jesus christ who is the one who made the ages? Then in verse 3, last time we started getting into the, the first couple of clauses here that emphasize the deity of Christ. Who being the brightness of His glory, or who being the flashing forth or the radiance of His glory, and the express image of His person. And in those two phrases, we get a nutshell Christology that emphasizes the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not some derivative deity. He's not created deity. He is full deity equal to God the Father. Now we looked at the structure of these four verses last time and I pointed out that they're in the form of a chiasm. And the, one of the reasons that writers use a chiasm and chiasm is, is used very, very frequently in Scripture. I mean, almost every other chapter or book or uh, oration or whatever it may be seems to be structured in the form of a chiasm. And in a chiasm, you have a a, uh, a mirror image between the first two or three or four lines and the last two or three or four lines so that there's a a parallelism between the, the initial statements and the last statements. And what the writer is doing is using this structure to focus the reader's attention on what's in the middle. So we start off with the sun contrasted with Old Testament prophets in verse 1 and 2a. Then the sun is messianic air in 1, 2b. So your A statement is the sun contrasted with Old Testament prophets. B statement, the sun is messianic air, 1 verse 2b. The C statement, the Son's creative work in 1-2-C and then the centerpiece is the Son's threefold mediatorial relationship to God and that's what we have here in verses uh, in verse 3 in the first two statements then C-prime the Son's redemptive work mirrors the Son's creative work earlier and that's in 1-3-C then in B-prime you have the Son as messianic king, and that's in 1-3-D, in contrast to 1-2-B, which was the sun is messianic heir, and then A-prime is the sun contrasted with the angels, uh, parallel to the sun contrasted with Old Testament prophets in the first statement. So that focuses us on the first part of this third verse and why it's important. "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person." We looked at it the last time and saw that the relative pronoun that begins the sentence shifts its case to the nominative case, indicating that Jesus Christ is now the subject of the sentence, the last part. The being translates a present active participle from the verb me, and that indicates ongoing existence. Doesn't mean to become, but it indicates ongoing existence. The eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. The brightness of His glory. Two key words are used at the beginning of this verse. Brightness, translated brightness or radiance, as I prefer to translate it. Radiance and the word, uh, character, character, translated express image, are Apox legomena in the New Testament. That means they're only used one time, and they're used very rarely outside of the New Testament. The word translated brightness in the New King James should be translated radiance or flashing forth of His glory. And the word for glory is the word doxase meaning weight, and that word represents the essence of God. The essence of God. Again and again in the Bible, when you talk about the glory of God, you're talking about His essence, His character. So the first sentence says that Jesus Christ continues to be the flashing forth or the radiance of His essence. And that's as far as we got last time. The next clause says that He is the express image. The express image. Of his person The new American standard Translates it the exact Representation Of his nature It's the Greek word Character Where we get our word character And it means An impression Or a stamp The word itself refers to an engraved Character or an impress Made by a die Or a seal It came to mean a characteristic trait or a distinctive mark. And it was used with reference to uh, special distinguishing peculiarities. And it has the idea of an exact reproduction. An exact reproduction. And so the use of this word emphasizes that Jesus Christ is identical in essence To God, the Father. The word "character" was used to refer to a die stamp that was used by the Greeks and the Romans to put an imprint, an impression, and an image on a coin as they minted coins. So it was used to indicate that 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 what was uh, imprinted was an exact representation of the die itself. So the point here could not be made any stronger in human language, that Jesus Christ is the exact representation. I like the way the New American Standard translates that: the exact representation of His nature, of His nature. The New, the new King James uses the word "person." I don't like the word "person" because when we talk about, when we talk about the Trinity. We talk about the fact that the the, the triune God exists as three persons and one essence. Three persons and one essence. And what we're talking about here is that there is an identity of essence between the Father and the Son. Not an identity of person. They are distinct in their person. Their personality. They are individuals. So the character of his nature and the word there translated nature is a word that should be familiar to many of you and that is the greek word hypostasis which is where we get our word hypostatic so this is where the early church fathers derived their vocabulary for explaining the union of humanity and deity in the lord jesus christ the word hypostasis refers to the essence, the substance, or the nature of something. It's essential or basic structure. The underlying essence of a thing. What makes a something what it is as opposed to something else. So here the statement is that Jesus, the Son, is the exact representation of the essence of deity now it's talking about him in his in the incarnation and it's the writer is saying that the son in incarnation is the flashing forth or expression of the glory or essence of god and then he comes back and says almost the same thing again but in a slightly different way saying he is the exact representation of his essence of his substance there there can't be a stronger way to express the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is undiminished deity this is not something that was manufactured by 300 theologians gathered together in 325 to meet at the council of Nicaea as is a claim that has been popularized in recent years The group of theologians that met at Nicaea were meeting to work on how they articulated, how they understood what the Bible said about the deity and humanity of Christ. They weren't inventing this at the Council of Nicaea. It's very clear from early church fathers. You go back and you read, uh, even as far back as Clement, you read, Irenaeus, you read a number of the other fathers in the, in the second and third century, Tertullian and others, they have clear statements showing that they believed in the full, undiminished deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was nothing new. The issue at Nicaea was, well, if Jesus is full deity, how does, how does he relate to the Father? How does Jesus relate to the Father? We say we believe in one God. Well, how are we going to express this? We had, it looks like we have two gods. And that was one of the criticisms from the pagan world at that time, was that, hey, you claim to have the Father as God and the Son as God. Well, it sounds like two gods to me. How do you put that together? And so they wrestled with this over the years, and as they wrestled with this in the 2nd and 3rd century, they came up with some screwballed, Interpretations. One was put forth by a presbyter from down in Alexandria, Egypt, by the name of Arius. And Arius said, well, God the Father creates the Son at some point in eternity past. So there was a time when the Son was not. That was Arius's famous catchphrase. There was a time when Christ was not. Now we have the same thing going on today. Every time you have somebody come on... And with their New World Translation and knock on the front door of your of your house, uh, and it's a Jehovah's Witness, that's the exact view that they hold, is that God created Jesus at some point in eternity past. So say He's God, but He's not the same as God the Father. That's the, that's the difference. That, the son, that what we're saying is the Son is the same essence as the Father, identical essence as God the Father. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is developing here. So we've developed out of the Council of Nicaea the definition or understanding of the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union describes the union of two natures. See, there's that word essence again. It's a hypostatic union is the union of two hypostases, two essences. The hypostatic union describes the union of these two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. Now what that means is that as they came together in the incarnation and were united, that unity is no longer separable. It's not reversible. It's a permanent unity. And in that unity, you have human nature and divine nature. And there's no loss of human characteristics or a loss of divine characteristics. So he's not, uh, partially human and fully God or fully God and, and, or, or partially God and fully human. Uh, there's no loss of individual attributes. He's fully God. He's fully man. And there's no mixture Of the attributes, you haven't put him in a blender and mixed these things up. He's not one nature and one person. He is one person and two natures. The next clause says, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. That means that his deity doesn't pick up human characteristics. They don't leach in over there so that his deity somehow is diminished by humanity, and neither does his deity leech over into his humanity. Now, a problem we get sometimes is we, we have trouble articulating this. We see Jesus do certain things. We, he eats, and we say sometimes we did that out of his humanity. That's a little bit of a difficult phrase. He's not a schizo. He's not, this isn't multiple personality here. His whole person is eating. The fact that he hungers shows that he has humanity, and that relates to his humanity. But the whole person hungers. Now, that's a difficult concept for us to get our our mental fingers around. The whole person suffers. He's one person. So that when Jesus thirsts, that one person thirsts. Of course, deity can't thirst, so it doesn't indicate anything about his deity, but there's this unity there. The same thing is true when we get into the next sentence that talks about him being seated at the right hand of God. The fact that he is seated indicates humanity. Deity doesn't sit. Deity doesn't have a physical body. So the fact that He is now seated at the right hand of the Father relates to His humanity. The resurrection body is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the deity is still omnipresent. That's where we have difficulty. Our minds can only go so far. We we understand that Jesus was incarnate and that little baby in the manger that's uh, that's crying and, and making all those little baby noises and... and uh, as having to learn how to speak and how to learn how to talk and, and, and is developing physically, that at the same time that that is going on with his humanity, that same person that has now be, uh, taken on a finite replication in the, in the manger in his deity, he's holding the atoms together and holding the universe together. Now that 's just the kind of thing that we can only go so far, and then we start we start losing it, so don 't uh, overthink on it but that 's what that next clause means that without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, and then the next clause, the union being personal and eternal, it is a personal union he 's not an impersonal force that has somehow become Uh, entered into, into human history. He is a person. It's the person, the second person of the Trinity that is joined with a human person so that there is relationship that is possible. And it is eternal. That means it never stops. A thousand million years from now, Jesus Christ is still going to be in hypostatic union. We are still going to be able to walk up to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and feel the nail scars and the scar in His side. Somebody once asked the question, is there going to be anything in heaven from, from the physical universe? And the only thing that we know of for sure that's going to be in heaven from the physical universe or from this world that's going to continue into the new heavens and the new earth is going to be those scarred hands and feet and the scar in the side. That is always going to be there. There will always be that evidence in heaven of a fallen world, even when all else has been erased. He's united together in one person forever. Now this is how the church fathers of the Council of Nicaea articulated the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, all-governing, Creator of all things, visible and invisible. Notice how they start with God. They start with God the Father, and they emphasize first His sovereignty, that He's the Father of all governing, and second, that He's the Creator, Creator of all things, visible and invisible. It doesn't start with Jesus Christ. That's the issue. We believe in one God, not two gods, not three gods, one God, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we have to define what we mean by Son of God. Begotten of the Father is only begotten. That talks about the fact that Jesus Christ eternally pro- comes out of the Father. There's this eternal relationship there. He's the, that eternal... Radiance or flashing forth from the Father. And they use the word begotten. Not being born, as they'll explain, but begotten. Begotten of the Father is only begotten. That is, from the essence, the very essence of the Father, God from God, light from light. And I pointed out last time that when we think about this phrase, al here, the, the radiance or the flashing forth of His essence, that that is like the rays of the sun coming out from the sun. You can't separate it from the sun. If you cut off the rays, you cut off the light. If you cut off the light, you cut off the rays. They are uh, inseparably united. And so this is the image that is behind this phrase, light from light, true God from true God. They understood Hebrews 1.3. Then they go on to say, begotten, not created. Begotten doesn't... They distinguish the concept of being begotten from being birthed. It doesn't imply a beginning. It it implies a relationship and an eternal procession. He's begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. The same essence of the Father. And they fought over that terminology. The word translated, same essence was the word homoousias, H-O-M-O-O-S-I-A-S, H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-A-S, homoousias. The other word they wanted to use was homoiousios The difference was a little letter, we call it the letter I in the Greek, it's iota if you use uh, typical academic pronunciation today. If you use an older form of pronunciation, they called it an iota. And uh, Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, when he, and he didn't like Christianity, he was very anti-Christian, he said, see, all they did was argue all this about these two words and it didn't make an iota's worth of difference. See, now all your life you've heard that phrase and you didn't know where it came from. And see, ultimately everything's theological. At least I like to think so. So they argued about that, but it makes a tremendous difference. Is Jesus the same essence as the Father, or is He just like the Father? Derivative essence. And so they determined that He was of the same essence. That's what the Scripture teaches. The same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being. Just like what we have here in Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.16 and 17. Both in heaven and in earth who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered, and the third day He rose, ascended into heavens, and He will come to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That was the Nicene Creed. And if you grew up in an Episcopal church or in some Presbyterian churches or Roman Catholic church, you may have grown up reciting that on a regular basis and not having any idea what it really meant. So Jesus is the radiance, the flashing forth of His glory, His essence, and the express image of His character, and upholding all things by the word of His power. That's the third thing that is said about Jesus Christ at the center of this whole section, the center of that chiasm I talked about earlier. He is upholding all things by the Word of His power. Now, the word translated upholding doesn't simply mean sustaining it. That's the idea in Colossians one sixteen and 17, that Jesus Christ sustains the universe. That right now, He's holding everything together, and that means that nothing mankind can do can destroy it. We can't pump enough hydrofluorocarbons into the atmosphere to destroy the planet. Jesus Christ is holding everything together. We don't have to worry about global warming. Jesus Christ controls the atmosphere. Jesus Christ controls the environment. But that's not what this is saying. This is the present active participle of the Greek verb pharaoh. The Greek verb pharaoh, which just looks like this, p-h-e-r-o. The Greek verb pharaoh, which doesn't mean simply to, to hold something as you might hold a, a heavy weight or hold something together as if something might fall apart and you're just, you're just taking three or four different components and you're holding them together so that everything continues to function. It has the idea of carrying it along to its conclusion. Carrying it along to its conclusion. So the concept is a dynamic Concept and not a static concept. He's not just standing there holding it together in one place, but it's the idea of movement. That the Son's work of upholding involves not only support, but also movement. He is the one who carries all things forward on their appointed course to their ultimate destiny. It is another way of talking about the fact that Jesus Christ controls history. It is therefore parallel to the idea, stated at the end of verse 2, that He made the ages. He made the dispensations. And here it's expanding on that idea, saying that not only has He made the dispensations, but He is the one who is moving things progressively through the dispensations to their ultimate and final resolution. Therefore, there is not only intelligent design in the universe, but if but that intelligent design has a plan and a purpose. The intelligent designer has created everything with a destiny in mind. So we're going somewhere. It's not just random events, random chance, and, and when you encounter Problems and difficulties and adversity in life, it's not random. There's a plan and a purpose. There is an intelligence, a loving wisdom behind everything in history, moving it in a particular direction toward its resolution. And Jesus Christ is the one who is directly involved. It's the second member of the Trinity. He is moving things, moving all things along by the word, of his power now we have two different words in greek that are translated by the english term word the first is the word you may be more familiar with logos logos l o g o s from which we get our english word logic logos has the idea of a of a thought word reason uh, all of this is part of that meaning of the word logos. And it talks about the uh, word in its, as an abstract concept. But the word rhema, rhema, which is what we have here, speaks of a spoken or articulated word. It is not a word in the abstract, but it is a word that is spoken. It is the idea that we have in Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke... And things came into existence. God said, let there be light. And there was light. In fact, Psalm 33, verse 9 says, For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. That Jesus Christ carries things forward by His spoken Word. He is directly involved in the creation and in the ongoing maintenance of creation. This isn't the picture of the God of deism that, that is pictured as the watchmaker that tightens everything up and builds the watch and winds it up and then just sets it over on the shelf and goes to do something else and just lets everything wind down. He is personally involved in the ongoing progression through time of the creation. And He is controlling it and directing it by the word of His power. The word of His power. The word power in the Greek is dunamis, which indicates His power, His ability, or His capacity. When God is the subject of this noun, the focus is divine omnipotence. What actuates the power of God is the spoken word, the spoken command of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that in this threefold statement that it's that's at the heart of this structure of Hebrews 1 through 4, we have Jesus is the one who is the radiance of God's glory, he's the exact representation of his character, and he is the one who is upholding everything by the word of his power. And all of that talks about His function as deity. And then in the last two sentences, we talk about His work in terms of salvation and in the reconciliation of the world. It should be translated, after He had Himself made purification. The word there, the verb, is poieo. The verb is poieo. It's the aorist middle a participle since the participle here doesn't have an article with it it's an adverbial participle of time and it should be understood with, and translated with the word after not when it's not when he had made purification he sat down that indicates contemporaneous action but it's after he made the purification from sins which was on the cross then he sat down at the right hand of the father it is a subsequent act in fact in, in uh, hu- human or earthly time, there was a 40-day uh, difference between the cross and the ascension. So after He made, and the word here is, should be translated made purification, the New King James translates it, uh, when He had by Himself purged our sins, and that loses a little something from the Greek. The Greek has the verb made plus the noun for purification which is katharismos. Katharismos. So it's after he had and then there's an emphasis in the text by himself emphasizing the unique role that he played in redemption. That it was Jesus Christ himself. Not some image, not some hallucination but it was the Second person of the Trinity incarnate in human nature, the hypostatic union, that He Himself made purification for our sins. And the word there, translated purification, is very important to understand. The noun katharismos, and in fact, the whole word group, you're familiar with um, the verb katharizo, we talked about it before, that's the verb you find in 1 John 1.7, that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sins. And the noun katharos in 1 John 1, 1.9, that when we confess or admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, what, cleanse us, katharizo. To cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. It's related to the English verb cauterize. And it has that idea of purification cleansing. And in the Old Testament, it was a very important word for what took place in the tabernacle. Now, I want to draw a little information out about the ritual ceremony that took place in the Old Testament that is usually... Uh, not brought out uh, very very much, and as a result, people get a little unclear on the concept of the importance of confession. In the Old Testament, you had initially the tabernacle and then the temple. This is a picture of the outer wall around the tabernacle. There was only one way to get into the Presence of God. It's still the same way. There's only one way into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. At the innermost part of the temple or tabernacle was the holy place with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. As the priest entered in, He offered sacrifice at the brazen altar, and then before he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to wash his hands and his feet at the labor. And that was for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. Now there's a difference between ceremonial cleansing and real cleansing. What's the difference? Well first of all if to be a priest in Israel you didn't even have to be saved you just the only requirement to be a priest was that you had to be born in the tribe of Levi so you didn't have to be saved so your your all you have going on in the ritual is a lot of picture theology it pictures what's happening in the spiritual realm but it's ceremonial Now, in order to teach the importance of cleansing and that everybody is a sinner and in constant need of cleansing and in need of salvation, God established a lot of ritual laws in the Old Testament that identified when a person became ceremonially unclean. If you were ceremonially unclean, that meant that you had to go through ceremonial cleansing before you could participate in the ritual. And things that made you ceremonially unclean were not necessarily sins. Let me say that again for those of you who are nodding off. Ceremonial, something that made you ceremonially unclean was not necessarily a sin. You could touch a dead body and you were ceremonially unclean. Why? Because that association with death is a reminder of sin. That's why you have in the dietary laws... When you look at all the different animals that couldn't be eaten, it didn't have anything to do with health. It had to do with that most of the animals uh, ate dead things. You had scavengers. If you were under the Mosaic Law, you couldn't eat good things like fried shrimp and crawfish and lobster and, and fried catfish and all those things we enjoy because they're scavengers. They eat dead things. And so you were prohibited from having an association with that, It's a picture of sin, and so you couldn't come into the presence of God ceremonially. So that's the picture here. There has to be ceremonial cleansing. On the other side, you have real cleansing, which is what happens when you sin. Therefore, when David commits the sin with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to have Uriah killed, when Nathan comes to him and, and challenges him with his sin and he recognizes he's a sinner, and he finally gets to that point in Psalm 51 where he confesses his sin, he doesn't have to go to the temple and sacrifice to confess his sin. Because the issue at that point is real cleansing, not ceremonial cleansing. Because he's got to restore his relationship with God, not his ceremonial relationship at that point. So he confesses personally to God. Same thing when he's out with the sheep and he's 50 miles from Jerusalem and he's got to get back in fellowship. He's not going to go grab a lamb and then run a 50-mile marathon back to Jerusalem and sacrifice that lamb so he can get back in fellowship and then run back to the uh, sheepfold and then trip and stub his toe and say something he oughtn't and then have to turn around and grab another sheep and run all the way back to Jerusalem and sacrifice that lamb and then turn around and run all the way back and realize that, that uh, some thieves had come and, and stolen uh, some sheep and now he says something else or does something else and he has to turn around and run back. See, that's what would happen if you confuse ceremonial cleansing with real cleansing. And furthermore, if you have, you'd have to constantly be headed back to, to the temple in order to ha- be in fellowship with God. So we have to make that distinction. Now, when we look at our passage, an illustrative passage in Luke chapter 16, verses 29 and following, this describes what happens on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement known as Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, Kippur is the Hebrew word that has been traditionally translated as atonement, the Day of Atonement, once a year. And it's a picture of salvation. Other sacrifices, such as burnt offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, dealt with post-salvation sins, what we would call confession, getting back in fellowship type sins. But the Yom Kippur pictured salvation. And this is the statute, Leviticus sixteen twenty nine and following. This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. Everybody gets a day off. It's a national holiday. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, it doesn't take a master's degree in Semitic languages from Dallas Seminary to figure out what the main idea of verse 30 is. It's a word that's repeated twice. What is it? It's not tough. It's cleanse. It's cleansing. That's the idea on the Day of Atonement. Interesting idea. Cleansing. You don't have to go read a... You know, to get three years, four years in Hebrew to figure that out. Same thing that happens in 1 John 1, 7, and 9. 1 John 1, 7, if you don't remember, it says the blood of Jesus continually cleanses you from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do those two verses have in common? The idea of Cleansing. Now, most of you remember that, uh, that a few years back there was a, 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 a pastor that came out that began to teach that you didn't need to confess your sins from 1 John 1.9. And that, that really isn't an unusual position. Among Christians, there have basically developed over the centuries about six or seven different what we'll call models of sanctification. Six or seven different models of sanctification. The problem is that six of those basic approaches to the spiritual life are all based on the idea that once you're saved, all you have to do to grow as a Christian is just do the right things and don't do the wrong things. You know, follow the positive mandates of Scripture and avoid the prohibitions. And you'll grow as a Christian. But see, that's nothing more than pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's trying to mature by the flesh, doing it of your own effort. Galatians 3.3, Paul just slammed the Galatians. And he said, how is it that you, having begun by means of the Spirit, are now trying to be matured by the flesh? What were they trying to do? They were just trying to follow the Mosaic Law. In order to grow. And see, that's what you have in most of these different models of sanctification. And just so you have a list of them, you've got a Roman Catholic theology, you've got Lutheran theology, you've got a Reformed theology, a Holiness theology, a Pentecostal theology, a Keswick theology, and dispensational Augustinian theology, uh, uh, view of sanctification. And... Uh, In the early 80s, a book was written, one of these books they write for seminary students, that is uh, where you have a a different theologian for each of the different camps write an article defending his position, and then the other guys critique it. It's great for for pastors and theological students who are studying these things because it helps you see the contrast between the different views. What irritated me when this controversy went on about ten years ago is that, the people who were, who were dropping confession were ignorant of this book. And Dr. Walbert wrote an article called The, Dispensa- the Augustinian Dispensational View of Sanctification. And when that book came out, I was in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, and there were doctoral students saying, I didn't know there was a distinctly dispensational view of the spiritual life. And I don't blame them because it really wasn't taught. But what distinguished the dispensational view of the spiritual life from the others is the dynamic of confessing your sins to, so the Holy Spirit can re- be recovered in His sanctifying ministry. Understanding that we can walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, we start walking by the flesh. And there has to be a recovery mechanism other than just saying, well, I, hope God, I trust God's going to... Get me back over there somehow. And that's first John one nine. But then everybody got hung up on the word confess, and the issue isn't confession. That's the mechanic. The issue is cleansing. That's what you see that goes through everything from from the Mosaic Law from, from before the Mosaic Law, the patriarchal period to the Mosaic Law, to the church age, and even in the future generation. In the millennial kingdom, when there's a restoration of the temple, there is a restoration of animal sacrifices. But the animal sacrifices that are restored in the millennial kingdom aren't the sacrifices related to salvation. They're related to sanctification, to the spiritual life. And they're going to be people and priests born in the millennial kingdom who have sin natures. And those priests that are born in the millennial kingdom and have sin natures and are going to work in the temple have to have a process of ceremonial cleansing. That's why they're going to have ceremonial sacrifices for ceremonial cleansing in the millennial temple. But what this pictured, and I wrote a detailed scholarly article on this for Chafer Journal about four years ago to demonstrate this, is that in all dispensations, there's always a method of cleansing from post-salvation sin. And it's pictured in the tabernacle, in the Mosaic Law, the temple, and in the future temple through these ceremonial sacrifices. Now, when we look at this, the word that is translated... I don't think I made a slide of this. The word that's translated for atonement is the word kafar. Looks like this in, in uh, Hebrew K K A P H A R. And for years it's been taught that the, the, and thought That the basic idea here was to cover The idea of covering sin That when sin is covered by a sacrifice Then God is a peace So there's a correlation between that concept and the concept of propitiation, that the righteousness and justice of God is satisfied when it looks at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that idea is somewhat present here. The Jewish translators translated this with the word ex hilaskomai." Ex "Hilaskomai" is a word that is translated propitiation in the scripture. And the Septuagint, to translate atonement, in the Leviticus passage, translated it with exhaloskemi, meaning to appease, to propitiate, or to make atonement. What's interesting in all of this is in Exodus 30, verse 10, where you also have a passage dealing with the Day of Atonement, the word for atonement is translated with a different Greek word. And the predominant Greek word that is used to translate atonement in the Septuagint isn't halaskamai. It's katharismos. It's cleansing. And recent studies have indicated that cognates to the Hebrew word kafar that you find in the Akkadian language indicate that the core meaning of Kafar isn't covering It's cleansing. It's cleansing. And that's exactly what we have the writer of Hebrews referencing here when he says, when He by Himself had made purification or cleansing for our sins. There are two types of cleansing in the Christian life. Cleansing one is cleansing related to salvation which deals with all of your pre-salvation sins and gets you saved. Cleansing 2 is what happens as you go through the Christian life and you commit sins and you have to recover from those sins so that uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry is restored in your life to produce spiritual growth. And that's cleansing 2. And so what we're talking about here in verse 3 is that when Christ had by Himself made... Cleansing or purification for our sins. That's His work on the cross. And when He finished it, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And that introduces the doctrine of the ascension and the session. And I've been going through a review of that for the last four Sundays at uh, Country Bible Church in Brenham. I'm not going to do as detailed a study on that as I did last year, uh, but we're going to have to go back over it in at least a week or two to make sure we understand that. The whole concept of the Ascension and Session is foundational to the book of Hebrews. If you remember when we started, I said that Hebrews is really all about unpacking the significance of the doctrine of the present session of Christ and its significance for the believer's future rule and reign with Him. So we're going to have to do a review of the Ascension and Session. And don't think that because you've heard it once or twice that you have a clue. I've taught this, when I come back from Brenham next week and start it here, that'll be the sixth time I've taught it in two years. And every time I'm teaching it... I get new insights. It's an extremely difficult thing to understand. I keep trying to boil it down to make it a little more digestible for folks because it pulls together so many different strands from the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it is so crucial. The only book, as I pointed out in the introduction, the only book in the New Testament that deals with the present session of Christ and His high priesthood is Hebrews. It's foundational. We're going to be lost, and most people are lost, when they want to understand the real significance of Hebrews because they don't really appreciate the significance of the present session of Christ. So we'll start there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank You for this time to study Your Word this evening. Thank You for this tremendous presentation and description of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. and and, which, and, and, and His work on the cross when He made complete and full payment for our sins so that we might have eternal salvation. So that for us, sin is no longer the issue. The issue for the unbeliever is faith in Christ. The issue for the believer is to walk by means of the Spirit and to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of the things that we've learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.